Uh, today, we are in our last week of Mission and Mercy March, where we've been focusing on the core values of global missions and mercy and justice. And these, I pray, are not just core values for us as a church, but core values for each individual Christian. I pray that these are things that you personally are being convinced and convicted from Scripture are absolutely central to the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. And so wherever you are, would you stand with me as your act of worship to read and receive God's holy word from Isaiah chapter 58, reading from verses 1 to verse 7. Hear now, friends, the reading of God's holy word. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. And would you join me in prayer once more? Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who unites our hearts this very morning in worship, not only amongst our local church cornerstone, but unites our hearts in worship, in solidarity with every church and all the gathering of the saints across the world as we rest and we remember this day in you. And we rejoice in Christ our Lord. We thank you, Holy Spirit, also for your inspired word that it was given to us And that through it, how you continually impress upon our hearts your desires and your heart, your encouragement and your rebuke. Lord, speak to us this morning. We pray and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been saying that the core values of global missions and mercy and justice uh, are not optional to the Christian life. In fact, they are central, they are essential, and they are foundational. Or put another way, mercy and justice are not the roof of the Christian life. They are the basement of the Christian life. And yet we often evaluate our spiritual health and the vitality of our spirituality through means that are sort of lopsided. We measure it through acts of devotion between us and God. And two standards that we often use are Bible reading and prayer. And so we judge and we determine whether or not we're living lives pleasing to God based on how much of the Bible we're reading and how much we're praying. Now, our passage today in Isaiah 58, it offers a rebuke and a critique against such kind of behavior. And in this passage, God makes clear what he really desires from his people. And so as we look at this passage, here is our gospel truth. 
God doesn't desire religious performance or piety, but righteous practices of mercy and justice. Let me say that one more time. God doesn't desire religious performance or piety, but righteous practices of mercy and justice. And as we look at this passage today, we're going to consider three things. What we think God wants, what God really wants, and how we do what he wants. So once again, what we think God wants, what God really wants, and how we do what he wants. So here's our first point, what we think God wants. Verse 1 begins with God's call for Isaiah to confront the sins of his people. So let's read that again. Verse 1. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Now Israel has apparently done a really bad thing, a real big no-no. And God says to Isaiah, what they've done is so egregious, so offensive, so evil, don't you dare hold anything back. Speak loud like a trumpet so nobody can pretend like they didn't hear me calling out their sins. And so as a reader, you get ready. What could be this bad? What did they do? Was it idolatry? Was it blasphemy? Was it heresy? Well, the answer is in verse 2, and it's not quite what you expect. What is their heinous transgression and sin? God says, Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. Israel's big sin is that they seek God daily and delight to know his ways. But what's wrong with that? Because God then says, As if they were a nation that did righteousness. God is calling Israel out for doing all of these religious things for him. But these performances and acts of piety are just for show. They're not righteous in God's eyes because they are not done rightly for God. So in the end, God is disgusted by them and not honored. And you see this reflected in the very attitude of the people. Listen to what they say to God in verse 3. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? You see, the people are confused because they've done two very religious things. They've fasted and they've humbled themselves. And it seems to them like God isn't rewarding them for their religious performances. So they're confused. They're thinking, God, we read the manual. We held our end of the bargain. Why aren't you seeing what we're doing? Why aren't you acknowledging? Why aren't you responding and giving to us what we're asking? Now, it's relatable, this kind of confusion, when you feel like you've done everything you're supposed to, and what comes in return is not what you expected. Now, I remember the first time I had to set up internet for my parents. Uh, We were moving from a landline connection to cable internet. It was big news. But of course, our family was too cheap to pay for the Comcast guy to set it up for us. And so we decided to do it ourselves, which really meant that I had to do it for them. And I remember meticulously following the directions on the box. And hours later, plugging everything in for that moment of truth. And back then, when you logged onto the internet, you typed in a screen name and a password. And I logged into America Online. And I waited and I waited. And nothing. No, you got mail. Nothing. 
It still didn't work. And quickly that hopeful expectation and anticipation became confusion. And that confusion then led to frustration. And that frustration then led to despair and disappointment. Why wasn't it working? I did everything I was supposed to. I followed all of the steps on the box. You felt something like this before, haven't you? The Israelites, they're following all the instructions on the box. They're obeying religion, the religion 101 manual. They fasted. God, don't you see what we're doing? They've humbled themselves, and yet they're not getting from God what they expected, what they hoped for. You see, but that's their very problem. They think they know what God wants, but they don't. They think God will delight in all of their religious performances and their piety before him, but God sees right through it. So he says in verse 3, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. God is calling them out, and when he calls them out, he's actually calling us out too. God's saying, you pretend like you're doing all of these things for me, but you're really doing it for yourself. You're doing all of these things because you care not about what I really desire, because, but because you're so busy trying to get from me what you desire. You see, friends, their obedience and their religious acts was simply to get something from God. That's what they thought God wanted from them. Well, let me ask you, what do you think God wants from you? We think we know the answer, and so we focus so much on our performances and our piety before him. We focus on motions and emotions. We focus so hard on making sure they are right and they are proper. And so we offer them to God, not only as if he wanted them, but as if he needed them. We offer our religious acts to God as if they were payment, and we expect from him some kind of return, some kind of reward. And when you approach the Christian life in this kind of manner, you've totally missed the heart of God. That's why God calls out his people and says, you are fasting, you are humbling yourselves for your own pleasure. Don't pretend like this has anything to do with me. But this convicts us because can't we get so busy and so caught up in doing these spiritual things all while losing sight of God? Because what we bring before God is never actually for him, it's for ourselves. The great British preacher Charles Spurgeon once told a story about a gardener who grew a beautiful big carrot And he brought it to the king that he loved, and he gave it to the king as an act of devotion. And the king was so touched by the offer. And the king discerned that this man's heart was so noble and pure that he decided to bestow upon the gardener a great plot of land, one ten times bigger than the gardener already owned. Now, one of the noblemen in the court witnessed all of this and thought to himself, well, if that's what the gardener got... For a mere carrot, how much more will the king give for me if I give him something bigger and better? And so the next day, the nobleman came before the king, leading into the courts a mighty, majestic stallion. And he offered it to the king, bowing low and saying his rehearsed lines. But the king discerned this man's heart to be selfish, so he said, Thank you, and dismissed the man. And the nobleman was perplexed, and he began to object when the king silenced him. And the king said, let me explain. There's a big difference between what you and the gardener did. The gardener was giving me the carrot, 
but you were giving yourself the horse. Isaiah 58 is calling out everybody who fasts and humbles themselves, those who engage in all sorts of religious activity, believing this is what God wants from them and obeying him only in the hopes that he will do something in return for them. All the while, their hearts are far and their acts of devotion are empty and external. They continue, as verse 3 and 4 says, to oppress their workers and to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. What we oftentimes think God wants, our religious acts of performances and piety, may not be what the Lord actually desires. So what does he want? And this, friends, leads to our second point. What God really wants. And God makes it so easy for us. Look with me at verse 6 where he says, Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Now, I want to clarify, to loose the bonds of wickedness here means to remove the chains that have been unjustly placed over somebody. In fact, the NIV translates that verse like this. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice? Now, we tend to think of justice usually in one kind of way, but justice is so much broader than what we tend to think of it as. You see, justice really means giving people their rights, or put another way, justice means giving people what is their due. You see, most times we understand justice as giving punishment to those who are guilty. But if justice is giving somebody their due, justice also means giving protection to those who are vulnerable. You see, justice is not only giving punishment to the guilty, but protection and provision to those who are vulnerable and in need. And the question is, why is God so concerned about protecting and providing for people who are unfairly and unjustly yoked and oppressed. Why does that stir God's heart so much? And the reason is this, because God has created all people to have equal dignity and honor. Dignity doesn't belong to only those who have accomplished something, those who have achieved something, or those who have attained something. Every single person made in the very image of God, possesses royal dignity and honor simply because they are created in his image. So David declares in Psalm 139, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Well, who is fearfully and wonderfully made? Only those in covenant relationship with God? or all people who have been created by God. It's every single person. We are all, as David continues, made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Every living person is formed and fashioned by God's hand and therefore made in his image. And if we are all made in his image, this is why God wants us to care about mercy and justice for all people, not just some people. Meaning that mercy and justice should overflow to the least and the last and the lost, for they too have the image of God in them. Why should we care 
that every yoke is broken and the oppressed are set free? Why should we care that the bonds of wicked injustice are loosed? Why, as Christians, should we bother to speak in place of those who have no voice? Why should we rise for action on behalf of those who have no power? Why should we work to affect change for those who have no influence? It's because every person is made in God's image, not just Christians, and therefore every person should be treated with righteous justice. Let me give you an illustration to help you grasp this point that I'm trying to drive home because I believe it's this important for us to understand. Uh, Last month, before everything got crazy and we could walk out in the streets, I got the chance to visit the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And here's one thing I observed. If you head to the American art section of the museum, there really isn't anything to see. It's not the most exhilarating part of the museum. In fact, in that section, one of the rooms uh, was just full of everyday common things like utensils, furniture, and hairpins. And to be honest, I had a hard time believing that this was art worthy to be displayed in this museum. But even these common everyday things were behind protected glass displays, or they were roped off so you couldn't touch them. Now, why were these things in the museum at all? Why did the curators consider them valuable and worthy to be shown and displayed to the public? And let's be honest, it's not because it's beautiful art that stirs the soul. They were in the museum because they belonged to somebody famous, important, and historic. Because if it wasn't for that, these items would just be a collection of old things. I think many of us view the image of God in this way. But if you think a person only has value, dignity, and worth because they belong to God, i.e. they're a Christian, then you'll actually miss the heart of mercy and justice. Because if your value and your worth and your dignity only comes from who you belong to, then what about unbelievers? What about those who want nothing to do with God? Those who reject and rebel against God? Are they less valuable? Are they less dignified? Absolutely not. Because they too are made in God's image. They too deserve to be treated with as much mercy and justice as any Christian. And if you default, tend to view those who don't believe in the Lord Jesus in such a way, you will be more cold and more callous toward them. Now that's the American art section of the museum, but there is a better part of the museum, the European art section. And there, when you enter the European art section, you can see beautiful paintings by artists like Van Gogh and Monet. And this part of the museum is totally different. How? It's because the pieces of art in this section, they don't get their value from who owns them. Their value comes from who created them. You see, whether these paintings are on display in the beautiful Louvre in Paris or they're collecting dust in somebody's attic or garage, these paintings are valuable. They are worthy simply because of who made them. They deserve and demand our attention simply because they are the handiwork of their maker. They reflect the creativity and the beauty of the artist. You see, friends, this is a better way to understand mercy and justice in the image of God. Like those pieces of art, all people deserve mercy and justice, not because we belong to God, but because we are created by God. They were made by him 
those who reject the Lord, those who don't know him. And so they still reflect the image of God. And it's because of this concern that God doesn't want a fast of religious performances and piety for him. This is why he demands and says, what I want instead are righteous practices of mercy and justice on behalf of those who need it. Then the question is, well, who are they? Who needs mercy and justice? Well, God says in verse 7, Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? You see, here in verse 7, God identifies three kinds of people. First, the hungry. Second, the homeless. And third, the naked. These are people who in Israelite society would be exposed and vulnerable and needy. These are people who cannot provide for themselves. But that's not the complete list. Isaiah 58 is actually known as the cousin passage of Isaiah 1. And there in verses 16 and 17, God says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And so two more groups are added to this list, the orphans and the widows. You see, now at this point, the list not only includes those who cannot provide for themselves, but those who cannot protect themselves. For an ancient culture, the orphans and the widows, those without a father and those without a husband, would not have a protector. But that's not the complete end of the list. If we look at another prophetic passage, a parallel passage in Zechariah 7, verses 9 to 10, it adds for us two more groups of people. There it says, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, true justice, show kindness and mercy to one one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. And here, friends, we see two more groups are added. Sojourners who are immigrants and the poor. So there we have it, the list of at least seven kinds of people, seven groups, identified people that God says, show mercy and justice toward the hungry, the homeless, the naked, the orphans, the widows, the immigrants, and the poor. Now, of course, here, God's point isn't to create an exhaustive list and say, here are the seven groups of people. Those are the only people you are to care for. The point is that this list shows us that God has a heart for the disadvantaged and the disenfranchised. That God's heart is for the deprived and the destitute. These kinds of people fill and they burden his heart. And so God is saying, these are the people I care for. And I want you to do the same. If you say that you really love me, then you'll love them. You'll stop the fast that you think I want, and you'll do the fast that I choose. You'll practice mercy and justice toward those who are powerless and those who are poor, those who are vulnerable, and those who are voiceless. And this is why God has no problem summarizing for us the nature of true religion in the book of James, where it says religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is true religion, righteous practices of mercy and justice. True religion, friends, is not 
simply religious performances and piety. So knowing this about God, knowing what he wants, Christians need to begin asking ourselves some serious questions. And there are at least three questions we should begin asking ourselves. Question number one, what does mercy and justice look like in the relational spheres I'm connected to? Among my friends, among my family, among neighbors, among coworkers. What does mercy and justice look like to them? Question two, what does mercy and justice look like in my community? What does it look like for my court, my neighborhood, my borough? What does it look like in my country? What does it look like in the world? And thirdly, what does mercy and justice look like in light of the coronavirus and those suffering in so many ways around the world? You see, friends, if we understand the true nature of God's very heart, that we practice righteous deeds of mercy and justice, it'll begin to activate us. But it all begins by asking these questions, who are the needy and what are their needs? Friends, realize this. Until you start asking the questions, you won't begin looking to answer them. Unless you begin asking the questions, who are the needy and what are their needs, you can never become the answer for them. And you won't know how to participate and begin practicing mercy and justice as God desires. So let us begin to ask, what does mercy and justice look like in my life in my relational spheres, in my community, my country, the world? What does it look like in light of this specific moment in our lives? So we know what the Lord does not desire for us to do. We know what he does desire for us to do. But thirdly, how do we do what he wants? How do we become the kind of people that God wants and to do what he wants? And the answer is this. We begin to do what God desires, what he wants, when we begin to identify ourselves with those to whom we are called to show mercy and justice. When we identify with the needy. Now, how do we do that? Look again at verse 7, and you'll notice God tells his people to do three things, if you remember. The three things were, one, he wants us to feed the hungry. Two, he wants us to provide hospitality to the homeless. And three, he wants us to clothe the naked. Now, those three things, feeding the hungry, hospitality to the homeless, and clothing the naked, those three things come up one more time in the Bible. In Matthew 25, Jesus is talking about the final judgment. And he talks about separating the righteous from the wicked. And in that teaching, Jesus draws directly from Isaiah 58, verse 7. Listen to what he says to the righteous in Matthew 25, Verses 35 and 36. Jesus says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. Notice here, Jesus mentions those three things found in Isaiah. Feeding the hungry, hospitality to the stranger, which is welcoming him, and clothing the naked. Then listen to what happens next in verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? You know, the righteous say to Jesus, 
We don't ever recall doing these things for you. When did we do those? We never saw you in that kind of situation, that kind of desperation, that kind of destitution. And yet Jesus responds in verse 40, and the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. What we see here is that Jesus himself identifies so closely to those who are in need that to serve them is to serve him. That to love them is to love him. Jesus identifies himself so closely to those at the bottom rung of society. Now, you have to understand, to the original hearer, this would have absolutely offended them. It was outrageous in the ancient culture. Why should God identify himself with the lowly and the nobodies? Because remember back in the ancient culture, the gods identified themselves with who? with those at the top of society. Gods were identified with kings and princes and priests. God identified himself with those with wealth and power and status. And yet the God of the Bible identifies himself with the immigrants, the poor, the orphans, the widows. Jesus is saying to feed the hungry is to feed me. To provide hospitality to the homeless is to show it to me. To clothe the naked is to clothe me. But think about how incredible this is. The God of the Bible draws so near to those in need and those with nothing. So closely that he identifies with them. He identifies with their hunger, their cold, their nakedness, and all those things become his. He is hungry. He is cold. He is naked when his people are. And we think about that. And then we remember this. That was just the start to what God was choosing to do. You see, God would later identify himself with his people in a way much more exposed and vulnerable than their physical destitution and poverty could ever make them. Because the gospel says that God identified himself with humanity so intimately so personally that our sins and our guilt became his. That in seeing our great need for mercy, seeing our plight and our predicament in the mess and hopelessness of our sin, he became sin for us. And so he took all of our guilt and was nailed to the cross on our behalf. He was treated as if our transgressions and our failures were his very own to begin with. See, friends, Jesus absorbed for us God's righteous justice against our sin so that he could shower on us God's rich mercy to forgive our sin. Let me say that again. Jesus absorbed for us God's righteous justice against our sin so he could make available to us God's rich mercy to forgive our sin. See, God showed us, he showed you, he showed me his perfect mercy and justice on the cross in the agonizing face of his son, Jesus, as he hung there for you and for me in our place. Friends, by showing you mercy and justice, Jesus then gave you an audience before the Father. When you had no right and no way to reach his ear on your own, Jesus did it for you. 
So now the gospel empowers you to become a voice and advocating for the voiceless and those who would otherwise never be heard by society. Friends, Jesus poured himself out in abundant and sacrificial generosity, not only until it hurt him, but to the point where it ended him. So now the gospel empowers you to be radically generous to those who have nothing or next to nothing to the point of your discomfort and your inconvenience. Friends, no, Jesus chose not to be uninvolved or ignore your deepest needs, but he came, he drew near as the answer to your desperate needs. So now the gospel empowers you to listen carefully to the cries, to look with sympathy upon the faces, and to groan together in solidarity with the least and the last of our world. You see, getting the gospel deep into your heart doesn't merely inspire you to deeds of mercy and justice. It changes you to become merciful and just because you first received these things in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when the gospel clicks in your heart, there's a transformation that takes place, not one that spurs acts of mercy and justice, but one that creates agents of mercy and justice. Because you realize that to please God is not with religious acts of piety and all of these performances by which you feel good, but you please God when you choose to fast that he desires righteous practices of mercy and justice to those in need. And when the gospel clicks in your heart, you'll find that the, God, that the fast that God chooses becomes the fast that you choose. And then the Lord will release us. He will release us as Christians and empower us as a church to be those very agents and those very advocates. Agents of mercy, advocates of justice in this sin-fallen, broken, needy world. To God be the glory. Let us pray.